Hello and welcome to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well-being, to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalienahai.com forward slash the high podcast. And you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at natalienahai. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Carl Miller, the research director at the Centre for Analysis of Social Media at Demos, the first UK think tank institute dedicated to studying the digital world. For the past nine years, Carl has been its research director, building new machine learning driven approaches to robustly study online life, and he's written over 20 major studies spanning online electoral interference, radicalization, digital politics, conspiracy theories, cybercrime, and internet governance. His debut book, The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab, was published in 2018 by Penguin Random House and won the 2019 Transmission Prize. He presents programmes for the BBC's flagship technology show, Click, and has written for Wired, New Scientist, The Sunday Times, The Telegraph and The Guardian. He's a visiting research fellow at King's College London, a senior fellow at the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, a fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime, an associate of the Imperial War Museum and a member of the Society Board of the British Computing Society. In this conversation, we explored how digital tools are being harnessed during this time of physical distancing, from their potential impact on our social and business lives to their implications for personal privacy and human rights. We also talked about what we can do to reduce the spread of misinformation and the principles we could apply to engage with social media and news in a supportive way that benefits rather than undermines our mental and emotional health. Let's dive in. So, Carl, thank you very much for meeting me virtually to have this conversation. I mean, I think virtual meetings are real meetings nowadays. Um, I've met lots of people um, kind of remotely over the, the, the last few days and like they are they are now as real as anything else to me. <laughs> I, I think that's set to get worse as the, uh, yeah, the spectre of the Covid virus. I always call it Covid virus. In my head, it's like this crow, this blind crow flying over, bringing pestilence and plague. I don't know if that's just some weird old... <laughs> well, the imagery works. <laughs> Too many horror movies, obviously. <laughs> So I want to start with um, maybe quite a, a big question. I want to ask you that, you know, from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Um, the, uh, I mean, like the, the, the human psyche is kind of going through a kind of tremendous series of spasms of alarm and terror. I mean, very clearly, um, we can we can see that kind of anxiety and distress and uh, and and fear for the future are kind of spiraling around more and more and more. Um, I mean, I think this is a moment where, um, for the first time, um, really, that anyone can remember, we're having to contemplate. If not mm. civilization actually completely shutting down, then most of it actually pausing for a indeterminate amount of time. Yeah, it's a strange one. I kind of get the sense that this is. I'm kind of holding two positions in my mind and in my emotional response to this at the same time. On the one hand, I have this sense of, actually, this is quite frightening. Um, It completely cuts across the way that we've been accustomed to living for so long. And on the other hand, some part of me, I know it's going to sound quite odd, um, notwithstanding the deaths and the suffering that is so clearly present, mixed with that, I, I also have this sense of hope. I think just because... 
the reading that I've been doing around its impact on areas that have been shut down. So for instance, I don't know if you've seen like in Venice, there is wildlife that's returned to the canals. And um, last night I was sitting, I'm in Spain, so we're already in lockdown and there's very little traffic on the roads in, in the area where I live, which normally is um, extremely highly polluted, way beyond what's um, recommended. And last night for the first time, I sat and I saw some bats coming out to hunt. I love bats. But so I wonder, you know, on the one, on the one hand, there's the panic and there's the fear and the real issues this is going to um, throw at the whole world and especially those most vulnerable and on the other hand it kind of somehow hits the pause button on our contributions to the climate crisis how do you relate to that um those those differing points of this crisis is it something you've thought much about or yeah it is it, it absolutely is and the um i mean i love bats too just incidentally <laughs> like that one on record um but no i mean the, the nearest like historical analogy that i've thought of is actually the the second world war mm. um i mean that too was a moment of kind of terror where it felt like civilization was coming apart at the seams where civilization at least in the kind of western liberal democratic sense certainly was mm. um uh, very very possibly going to end um and um in that moment was also one of the most kind of terrifying moments of innovation um, yeah. that we've ever had. I mean, we started the Second World War with planes that, that looked, you know, were made of canvas and wood, mm. you know, essentially little better than the kind of biplanes of the first. And we ended it with rocket planes. Wow. I mean, those four years transformed, you know, those, those four years we created the computer, we invented the radar system. Um, shipping completely transformed, international financial systems completely rewritten. Um, you know, I mean, there, there is nothing which concentrates human innovation quite like the very threat of, um, to civilization itself. And, you know, I, I would be astonished if we don't come out of this, and of course we are eventually and in some way coming out of this, mm. um, with um, having a very, very different world and, and a world which has been innovated in. I mean, already the most obvious place this is happening is in public health and, mm. in, and in vaccinology. But I imagine that more and more and more in social and political systems as well, um, we're going to see innovation happen too as we kind of begin to struggle with the kind of longer term consequences of all this, as well as the kind of short term terror. I'm curious about that, because from your perspective, looking, um, I'm particularly interested in the aspect of digital politics, digital democracy, cybercrime, so the whole virtual side of things and how that, well, at the moment has become suddenly much more front and centre in our lives, whereas maybe before it's slightly more ambient. From your perspective, do you have a sense of a vision that you hold for what the new normal could be when we come out of this, the best case scenario, the innovations that could happen? Um, do you have a feeling of what things you'd like to see? Uh, what I suspect will happen um, is that uh, we're about to see the... Let, let me tell you what I suspect will happen and then, and then, and then what, what, what good might, might, then, might then result. So we're, we're about to see, the, for the first time in, in our lives, the, 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 the actual awesome power of the state being used. Hmm. I mean, the state for most of us is this, um, you know, um, supplier of, you know, health services and, and kind of uh, uh, something that takes our taxes rather than this kind of sovereign entity, which is actually more powerful, more capable of killing, more capable of saving than anything else. And we're about to see that actually truly mobilised. Um, you know, whether it's going to be the military on the streets or the way in which the state uh, relegates food, um, this is all coming. Um, and I think that is going to um, extend online as well. Mm. So, so just as a series of laws will first be passed, which gives the state extraordinary power to kind of intervene and interfere in people's lives in the, in, in the public interest offline, mm -hmm. um, if, we, if we keep seeing what we are seeing happening online, um, you know, with the, this kind of noxious um, and extremely diverse, actually, mix of rumour and, and um, uh, and miracle cure and online exploitation and scams related to COVID-19 and everything else. Um, all the things that we would expect to see um, around an event that's so important and so capable of basically causing people to act irrationally is this one. Um, then I think we're basically going to see the state marching online as well. Mm. Um, I think that it's going to be much less of this kind of 10 year long discussion with the tech giants, much more a series of hard, sharp requirements. Um, for the tech giants to begin to shut things down hmm. um, or, or at least to be much, much more aggressive in taking things off. Um, which, which, of course, like for, for people like me, I guess, and, and maybe you, Natalie, who like, want to try and balance the 
you know, and understand that this is actually a, a, a space where there's a series of fundamental rights which come into conflict with each other, and mm. and in fact, you know, uh, the, 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 that kind of delicate seesaw needs to be needs to be balanced somehow. Um, that probably won't look great for the long term either. Um, so what I hope we'll then see as we come largely out of this is a kind of new um, idea of online harm. Um, we've 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 kind of not quite managed yet to kind of find the solution to online harms really, um, ways which kind of seem to both um, kind of deal with them in a way which limits online harms, but also respects other rights. And, and I'm hoping that um, in the kind of wake of this, that we come out with just a completely different understanding of what online, ha- online harms are, far more technology, both within the tech giants, but in civic society as well, to actually detect it, um, and just a better sense of, of, um, of, of which ones need to be cleared off um, quickly and and other interventions which can work to limit or mitigate them it's so fascinating um i expected you to go in a totally different direction which probably points towards my more orwellian um, turn of mind but i was i was thinking that you know with the with the governments coming in and really policing online interactions that of course the flip side of that is massive surveillance the likes of which you've already seen in china in korea with people being monitored in terms of physically where they're moving, but also in terms of data. So I was reading a couple of days ago about ways in which Instagram could be mobilized to um, detect from images which parts of the world are most likely to be experiencing an explosion in COVID infections. So what are your thoughts about that? Like, yeah, about the impact of this virus on the measures that governments take that could then potentially for the long term undermine human rights around privacy online? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that of course is um, a, a possibility as well. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that um, I think the European countries are obviously taking much longer to get to a kind of full enforcement state than, than mm. China. Um, I, it really depends how deep and how bad um, COVID-19 gets and um, therefore how willing um, states are to kind of abridge other rights in order to um, kind of, you know, uh, maintain public order um, and public health. And, and also um, the, the, the kind of like scale of kind of, I, I suppose, disobedience. I mean, the, everyone is hoping, European states are hoping that they don't need to surveil people. They don't need to get the army on the streets. Um, they can hopefully they can get kind of the public acquiescence to kind of stay in their home and largely obey um, largely obey instructions and advice. Um, but there's definitely the potential for, of course, the internet to be used um, in, uh, in 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 much more invasive ways, um, either to detect people that might have COVID on the basis of search terms, mm. um, where people are at any point. And whether people are breaking curfew, curfew enforcement, mm. less kind of intrusive surveillance as well might be done around situation awareness, like, you know, the, the uh, public disorder on the streets, um, uh, things like that. Uh, I think it all, it all just depends. Um, it all just depends how bad this gets. Um, incidentally, I, uh, I, back in 2012, I did with the former director of GCHQ, I write a, a pamphlet for Demos actually arguing that social media intelligence should be a different tradecraft hmm. um, and could be used for things like um, situational awareness. So I, I personally, I'm not hostile to the idea of um, open and, and public social media data or even private social media data being used in ways which, uh, like in the interest of intelligence or public safety, it just needs to be done in ways which balance the, you know, the intrusion into people's privacy with um, the other rights and requirements which people have, such as right to be protected, you know, um, uh, right to the body, private property, public order and so on. Hmm. Moving it back towards um, the social aspects and social dynamics, what are some of the interesting things that you're noticing in terms of how the current situation is playing out on social media? So whether that's misinformation or the kind of content that people are putting out there and consuming, what are the trends that most pique your interest that you're seeing right now? I think the, the trend that's always piqued my interest really over 10 years of researching social media is its unbelievable capacity to make us both extremely clever and <laughs> tremendously stupid um, each at at, at the, exactly the same moment. Um, so we've seen, you know, on the one hand, this kind of profusion of all this data and analysis and mapping and modelling and, 
uh, and and uh, and you know data rich conversations around pretty much every aspect of coronavirus you could possibly imagine, and then on the other, of course, um, all the things we've already been discussing, not just deliberate disinformation and misinformation and miracle cures, but just a lot of extremely speculative, hysterical uh, or outright wrong content being shared. Mm. Stepping away for a moment from the dangers of making us, it, making us more stupid, I think there are also actually dangers in the way in, w- in which it's making us cleverer. Mm. So one really important kind of thing that I think a lot of people are doing is simply immersing themselves in coronavirus at the moment. Not physically, Mm. hopefully, (laughs) but just every data point they possibly could get. You know, people are just inhaling scatter plots and breakdowns of Singaporean hospital case admissions Mm. and the news and every time any epidemiologist says anything. And I think there are actually big kind of digital and like kind of psychological consequences to this. It's possible to kind of just build yourself a world online, um, which is which is simply dedicated to coronavirus and um, kind of becoming anxious about things which you have no hope of actually changing mm. um, is, 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 actually, uh, is, is actually massively counterproductive anyway. Um, so I've actually, I've been talking to clinical psychologists, including my dad, who's a clinical psychologist, a lot about this over the last few days, mm. um, and t- trying to actually kind of arrive at just a few, a few kind of basic rules around um, uh, how to actually stay digitally healthy um, you know, how, how to use the internet in ways which, of course, keep you better informed and make you make smarter decisions, but without actually kind of really gnawing into your mental health in the way that I actually think a lot of people are doing. And, and, and that's through simply looking at true and right and accurate kind of breakdowns of coronavirus. That too um, is, uh, is actually, in a sense, um, dangerous if not done correctly. And so what are some of the um, recommendations that you've... Uh explored in these conversations <laughs> well um i think um I'll, I'll i'll put it under the header of um kind of everyone being alone together yeah so I, i'm kind of interested in this kind of like shared phenomenon that we all have that um we are all uh we are all isolated but all in the same place mm. um as it were what, what I, I, I was trying to develop just some kind of practical advice here and if i, if I might paraphrase my my father on it um, developing, well, firstly, understanding that um, us all being alone and especially potentially being immersed in coronavirus and thinking the world is going to end um, is absolutely ripe, fertile soil for um, old problems to re-emerge. So um, alcoholism, um, uh, gambling addiction, mm. um, domestic violence, Oof. all those things can come back suddenly. And that, that, that's the first thing that we've got to try and be mindful of. Mm. But there are lots of things, and this is the good news, that we can actually do to kind of mitigate all of this. Um, there's, there's very little known about um, what isolation, collective isolation actually does to people, mm. but it's likely going to be much less worse than the kind of isolation which we normally have, you know, of... Um, people already with a, a kind of panoply of kind of social problems or certain kind of elderly groups and so on. Um, developing routines um, consciously um, is, is a piece of advice. Learning to meditate is another piece of advice. Um, finding a balance between being informed and over-rehearsing our own personal helplessnesses um, is uh, another um, and I'll stop talking now because this is a long response. <laughs> I think there are also um, things that we can do, kind of specific rules around digital hygiene to kind of in this moment also change the way we actually use the internet itself as well. So let's dig into some of those things because I think for everyone who's interested in staying connected and abreast of the changes as they happen, um, it's also super important to make sure that we're not so immersed that we end up stressing ourselves to the point that we reduce our immune response and capability and then we're basically just undermining the whole effort of staying well. Um, So yeah, so tell us a bit about the hygiene that you just mentioned, digital hygiene. Great. All right. Well, so these are these are rules that I've been trying to work up. I'm still writing them. I think I think it's going to be an article for Wired in the end. Um, Brilliant. But but their rules are basically yeah how 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 to keep yourself and others healthy online. Um, I'd love to know your views on them actually, and, and anyone listening <laughs> to this because um, they I, I, I they are still being developed. But I'll, I'll take you through them and we'll see if any pique your interest. Um, Uh, Rule one is guard against outrage. Outrage is by far the easiest way of manipulating people online. 
Um, and um, we can see that happen in every single different influence operation campaign or clickbait we see. Outrage is always at the heart of it. Um, it's very easy to be outraged at the moment. It's very, very easy to be angry with the government response or someone else or Big Pharma. Um, and we need to be very mindful to kind of guard ourselves about uh, with that because um, outrage activation is just by far the easiest way of manipulating people. Mm. Um, rule two, don't passively scroll. Mm. I know this is the way that almost everyone uses platforms like Twitter and Facebook and we just need to stop it. Because <laughs> this is how you allow coronavirus concerns to just wash over you. It's also another way, a great way of being manipulated because all the kind of curation kind of algorithms and systems which kind of actually decide what goes into your timeline are exactly those which can be reverse engineered and gained. Mm. Um, so we've kind of got to get rid of the kind of passive scroll idea. Instead, rule three is kind of be mindful and actively reaching out to the bits of the information you want to find. Mm. So if you do want to learn about something, don't just let it come to you, reach out and get it yourself. I think the golden rule underlying all of this, actually, is the information that wants to find you isn't the information you actually want to find. Um, so don't just sit there and, 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 and let it arrive. Mm, I like that. Um, rule four, slow down. Rule four is simply about speed. Whether it's the miracle cure, whether it's the, the real reason coronavirus exists because it's really a bioweapon, whether it's some kind of blame or policy or something that hasn't been done... Um, Oftentimes, um, we, share, we share bad stuff and pass that on to each other. Because we've shared it before, we've actually allowed various kinds of rational and reasoning kind of um, parts of our brain to actually kick into gear. These are how virals are often reliably kind of manufactured. You know, they, they, they look to see what content can be is shared before we even think about it. Hmm. So one thing we really can do is to simply slow down whether you're sharing or commenting responding posting whatever it is just do it more slowly mm. um don't trust online metrics mm. they can be they, they especially when it comes to um you know we, we've kind of like really kind of sunk all of our trust into these you know follow accounts and 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 blue ticks and um you know number of likes and all these other things you know this has become for many people a kind of framework for trust and and it's all just nonsense use on non-online sources I, I actually i'm trying to think how this might work in the case of coronavirus but in general um there are actually some key decisions that we need to de-digitize in my view hmm. um just simply because relying on the internet for some things um i just think is is a silly idea and then lastly um spend your attention wisely it's your most precious asset i think increasingly we need to kind of we genuinely need to think about our information diet as a kind of diet um, we need to kind of change the, our understanding of what um, consuming information actually really means. We need to understand it has health consequences for us, um, very literally, possibly in the case of coronavirus. Um, and we need, to, um, we, we need to then kind of like work out how, um, much like our actual diet, we can kind of make decisions to protect our health and the health of those around us. I really, really like that structure. Um, and I think the, the initial point about, you know, beware outrage it's such a it's such an interesting one because it connects also with the the element that you talked about with um slowing down so reflecting instead of reacting and i remember uh, i received so i've got various whatsapp groups that suddenly now have kind of i don't know blossomed into vigorous life <laughs> and one or two of them are family groups and i've noticed that um <laughs> that the people who seem to be sharing the most content without necessarily reading the fine print are people in the group that are older so 65 and above which kind of reminds me of a piece of research I read I think it was last year looking at the groups that are most likely to propagate and consume and fall for fake news online um and it's, it's the 65 plus uh, I think it was in the US and the UK this was done that's right um yeah and so and I remember getting an email from one of my aunts whose husband um is a gynecologist he's recently retired but you know they know about medicine and it was an email that talked about um a stanford board of medics who had basically given people the following advice and i started reading it and it was really alarmist language and i felt this emotional push happening inside and i suddenly thought you know i mean i, I write about some of these 
um, dynamics uh, and speak about them. So I, I was sitting there thinking, this smacks of uh, button pushing, like emotional button pushing. And then I looked and there were no citations. So then I go to the actual um, website for Stanford University, what they're putting out there. And the, the advice is completely different. And then you have to you have to inform those who have already been exposed to the misinformation. But of course, when you look at data of the research that's been done on how we weight the truthfulness of a statement, usually it's the first piece of information that lodges itself in our mind that we have the emotional reaction to. And it's then harder to change our understanding of that information, even if it is later shown to be false. So that's kind of, I think the quickest thing that we can do is, is notice when these buttons are being pushed emotionally within us and at that point press pause. But it's such a tricky thing to do. Um, and it kind of connects with your point about the possibility for meditation or slowing down that we need to give ourselves space to actually consciously choose more of the time how we're engaging and what we're engaging with. Right, and, and that, that, I think that's brilliantly put. Um, and to, to, I mean, thinking through like who you know who's most vulnerable to all of this. I mean, obviously the the huge concern at the moment is that the the group that is most vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation online is also the group that is most vulnerable to mm. to the coronavirus itself. Yeah. Um, mm. So another kind of innovation or another thing which, you know, actually might come out of all of this is a completely changed way in which um, um, society kind of talks to its older members about the internet and, and its uses. Mm. Um, because, you know, there is... I mean, there is... A, I, I suspect a lot of um, kind of misinformation that is happening in closed groups we simply cannot see, um, including with lots of older communities. Um, and um, it's, just, it's just very worrying as a researcher when you, that you suspect there's a kind of harmful phenomenon occurring which you, you actually can't research, flag, challenge or mitigate mm. in any way. It's so strange. And I think also the other thing is that, because I've been thinking about this, um, I'm now in my 30s and I keep thinking that one of the interesting things when talking to people who are of different age groups, because the school where I was studying has a lot of people, certainly in the most recent terms, have come in who are in their early 20s. There's something that I've noticed in the younger generations and also in those much older. And somehow, and this is a generalisation, it doesn't apply across the board, there seems to be, in the older generation, this same belief, or at least it's expressed through behaviour, that suggests a belief in one's infallibility. And that's something I noticed in younger people too, the sense of, well, I can, you know, stay out late and drink as much as I want and do the drugs I want. And, you know, I'm talking about 20-somethings here, the ones that I've met, um, who display these reckless behaviours. And yet there's a similar level of recklessness happening in parents um, where I've had conversations with friends and they're like, yeah, my parents went out um, to do X, Y, and Z today. And I'm thinking, have they not seen the news? Like... I don't know. It's a really strange thing. And it's it's a lot of younger people that I've noticed who are actually taking the precautions to stay home, to protect the older ones and then getting pissed off when the older ones go out. It's such a funny phenomenon. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, hard to generalise, but but anecdotally, I've had exactly the same experience. Huh. Um, I actually asked Twitter the other day whether there's all these kind of difficult intergenerational conversations happening. And lots and lots of people kind of got in touch with me saying that, they're in these kind of shouted arguments with their parents <laughs> and grandparents, you know, people that are kind of smack bang in the middle of the, of the at-risk categories, yeah. um, who just, they, in their eyes, just aren't taking this seriously enough. Just so strange. Um, I remember t- t- shouting at my mum so that she wouldn't go into town to meet um, five or six other people in their 70s and 80s last week. Oh, God. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that lots of other people are um, having the same, the, the same trouble. Why do you think? I mean, I know we're, we're kind of plucking insights yeah. out of thin air here and I'd, <laughs> I'd be very interested to see what research comes out of this as the situation progresses. But what is your suspicion around why this might be happening? I mean, as, as a think tanker and as a researcher, I, I really try and take a stab at almost any question you could ask me. But, but honestly, Natalie, I have no idea. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. It is a, it's, it's a really, really bizarre thing. Um, I never would have guessed that it would have happened. Um, it doesn't really map on to any kind of understandings that I have around no. around any significant in, differences between generations. As you said, like normally we ex- we expect to see like riskier, more aggressive, or more reckless behaviours coming from younger um, uh, age groups. Um, I don't know. 
I genuinely don't know. I and I don't know whether it, this is this is something which is you know in in any kind of significant like statistically significant way playing out across society. But um, I mean, partly it might be because we all live on Twitter, where mm. which has become this kind of you know like throbbing kind of uh, mill of concern and anxiety, which <laughs> might have made us more concerned and more anxious. Yeah. And actually, you know. Not everyone is living on there. And uh, I remember like plucking up the courage to go out yesterday to buy some food, thinking it was probably the riskiest food shop <laughs> that I've ever done in my life. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was in the food shop and then about 40 school kids all bundled in after school. Like nothing happened. And I almost screamed, <laughs> um, you know, as they were all kind of rushing past me. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not sure everyone is in our world at the moment. No, that's true. It is funny. I was watching... Um, so I speak some Spanish and I was watching online some posts that have been shared in Barcelona. There's this hilarious... Well, I chose to see the funny side of it because also it's extremely serious. But there was this hilarious video of this guy, um, probably in his late 20s, early 30s, who was screaming from his flat to um, retired people playing... It's called petanque. It's like... Um, what's the basically like oh I know Patank yeah it's like bull there you go <laughs> yeah 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 and so and this guy is shouting from his balcony he's like all in Spanish like you guys I'm making a sacrifice here I'm staying inside so that you don't die how dare you go out and play Patank don't you understand and, and it's just there are so many examples of this it's um and part of me just finds it really funny but then I don't know. I mean, I connect it in my mind with some personality research that shows that actually our levels of neuroticism decrease with age. So maybe it's a combination of that and a denial of one's mortality or just getting to the point where you think, fuck it, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. No, I know. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, that, that's interesting around neuroticism. Yeah, I mean, what we need to do is, is personality profile, um, <laughs> you know, the curfew breakers at some point. Ah, yeah. To try, to try and understand... <laughs> A bit more about about what 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 maps onto it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like this is sorry, this is just a, it's a total mystery to me so far. <laughs> yeah, I imagine a lack of conscientiousness, and then probably higher dopamine levels, sensation seeking, wanting the thrill of getting getting out. Um, I don't know. I mean, there there is definitely something to uh, assessing risk profiles. I think. Um, this is the world we're living in now, where uh, going food shopping is an example of a thrill seeking behaviour. <laughs> I know it's uh yeah it's a really really weird one so I want to dive into a slightly different area um how have you seen this um shape the ways in which people are seeking out social connection because I know we've talked a bit about social media but there's also this sense of as you mentioned at the beginning being alone together what impact do you think this situation might have on how we use social oh I think it's I think a revolution is happening before our eyes hmm a revolution is already happening before our eyes. Um, a small, a small and quiet revolution, but but one nonetheless. Um, we are, you know, absolutely very clearly social creatures that that need social contact with each other. We just go bonkers mm-hmm. if we don't have it. Um, so um, we are we're seeing. Um, I think kind of social media especially, and, and I'll, I'll kind of drag all the kind of VoIP applications and Skype and FaceTime and, and everything into there as well, Slack, um, to basically take the strain and replace every, as far as we can, every form of in-person or face-to-face contact that we've had. So mm. um, we're seeing kind of neighbourhood groups forms, we're seeing hyper-local forums, mm. um, chat groups to um, help elderly people on the road get their groceries. Um, I have a family FaceTime, group FaceTime, um, which is so <laughs> realistic that we, uh, yesterday we ended up having exactly the same kind of argument that we used to have around the dining room table. <laughs> You know, but now people are scattered all over the country. Oh, that's funny. Uh, t- tomorrow, tomorrow I'm having um, beers after work over Skype with, um, <laughs> with friends across the country. Um, you know, people that I used to go to the pub with. Um, and this is just the beginning. I mean, I really, I'm, I, I'm actually excited to see. At the moment, what we're seeing is the kind of social use of well-understood technologies changing. Um, mm. I'm excited to see what happens with the actual technologies themselves. Um, because uh, there too, I think there is a space, uh, a rich vein of innovation to happen. Um, because we badly, badly, they are as life saving, really, in the long run as you know any epidemiological intervention. We need social contact, and if we can't have it face to face, then the, the, the social media has basically become life sustaining technology. Mm. 
I wonder what effect it will have going on when we get to the outside of this situation, when we get through it. And especially with regards to things like how people meet for work. So, for instance, um, it might be really easy to physically get 10 people in a room and have a meeting that lasts an hour that could have taken a 10 minute Skype call or whatever it is. Or, for instance, flying people to go to conferences, which is how I make my living and wondering which of these in-person experiences can transfer online but of course for that there needs to be something which is um, emotionally and psychologically rewarding and rich enough for us to make that choice as the primary choice when other more appealing um, in-person interactions are possible and I wonder how that connects with how we come out of this in terms of its impact on the climate crisis so all these flights being grounded. Yes, people are relying on virtual networks now. What happens on the other side when flight travel, I'm making an assumption here, but when flight travel resumes, albeit probably at a lower capacity than before? What do you think about those things? Well, I mean, yeah, I really, I really do hope that at some point in the future, flight level do, do actually resume and that we haven't actually gone back to the Stone Age. Um, <laughs> I, I, assume, uh, I assume that will be the case. Um, but no, I mean, we're, look, I mean, we're living through like a, a, a natural experiment of epic proportions um, about um, whether um, kind of economic intercourse can continue <laughs> without um, without people being physically present. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's like uh, it, it, we, we will see. I mean, and maybe that we will come through this kind of stunning realization that a lot of industries did not actually become that much less productive as the result of people working remotely. Mm. Um, I actually think that in many cases that will be the case. Mm. Um, traditions have dissolved kind of overnight because they had to. Traditions around sealing deals with handshakes and mm. wanting to look someone in the eye. You know, a lot of these kind of things which have sustained for a long time, which has kind of been, the, you know, one of the reasons why people have been flying back and forth all over the world. Um, they've, they've all suddenly disappeared. Um, so we'll see how this kind of reflects, really. I mean, the next step is, is, is how almost what, what began out of necessity becomes kind of formalised and codified as a new kind of organisational mm. theory of some kind or another. Mm. Um, what's interesting is that many of the tech giants have been kind of moving in this direction for quite some time already. Um, kind of at the same time as putting people in these primary colour campuses and hacking <laughs> in a lot of very smart people into a small space, yeah. they've also been working on um, ultimate remote working. So they, they were the first companies really across the world to shut their doors to their staff because yeah. they were already set up to do so. Yeah, it is fascinating. Um, um, and, and, and in part simply driven by the horrendous cost of keeping staff in Silicon Valley. Mm. I do wonder with this, I mean, there are clearly implications economically for businesses that don't necessarily need people to be physically present. So say, for instance, um, you're in a situation where you have, I can imagine this happening, like, I don't know, you split your staff into five groups and you have a different group come in for one day a week and the other four days they work remotely so there's still a sense of social cohesion of uh, organizational culture but there's you know suddenly you you have a lot less in the way of overheads for having to provide for 500 people instead of 100 people at a time for instance and I wonder also in terms of flexibility if that's going to help people with family life people who are parents so like my brother um, has a young family and he already did flexible working but it's extraordinary seeing the impact of this um, new norm which is suddenly been adopted and quite successfully in some industries um, to see the impact of that on daily life and it, it can be really transformative I wonder how many people will want to be closer to this version than what we had before when we come out of this yeah that's the big question isn't it is is whether we actually come out of this um thinking that we've emerged from hell or whether we've, you know, in terms of being locked with our families and trying to do our work or whether we come out of this actually thinking that it was, it was actually quite nice. Uh, probably both, I, I, I suspect. But I do think that it's going to be a question of not only workplaces changing, but also um, home life changing as well. Mm. Um, I think probably the home is going to change in some sense. Um, you know, we, we, we do know, I mean, lots of people that are kind of freelancers and so on that, have, um, that, that work from home commonly, you know, they, 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 they do know that it's important to adopt some things like, you know, clear space where you work, clear space where you sleep and live you know, um, to already create kind of senses of routine of getting up in the morning, mm. um, not allowing basically your kind of professional life to become 
one long trail of dressing gowns <laughs> and, and, and coffees and so on. So it is, it is interesting to see whether there's, there's technology or like design or, or other things which actually come into the home to kind of clearly demarcate it as being a place of work as well as a place um, of live and like and rest. Mm. Weaving back to this idea of technology and how we're using it for all sorts of things. Um, at the moment, those of us who have good access to the internet we're relying on this so heavily to support us socially and economically what do you think would happen if this were to go down for a few days that's probably i mean i think that that would probably um cause more social disorder and public panic than than a, a drying up on the food supply hmm. if i'm perfectly honest i mean every time the the internet looks like it's going to it's wobbling where i am i actually go out into a cold sweat <laughs> I mean, for for the reason you know, I'll go back. I'll go back to why. I mean, in part, in part, obviously, you know, uh, continuing to do work and and it is now, you know, we are leaning on it so heavily. But it is also our kind of social artery. It's our window into the world. Mm. Um, can you imagine what would happen if suddenly it basically it go you go blind in many ways. You go blind to the mm. welfare of lots of people around you. You go blind to your workplace. Um, you, you go blind to your ongoing projects. I, I think I think it would it would cause me to it would cause me to panic. Now I would love to say oh we'll probably go back to this kind of Victorian you know um, kind of home life where everyone kind of clusters <laughs> around the piano and children start playing with kind of you know wooden horses and <laughs> we all start com- composing adorable limericks and you know witness you know ep- epigrams to each other. Um, but but no, I, I think I think we need the internet. We've never we've never needed the internet more. For for it, the, the 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 internet has never felt more human to me than it does right now. It's never felt um, more important for for um, mm. keeping me close to family that I can't be physically close to. Mm. So I wonder, from a personal perspective, um, how the situation has shined a light on what you really value and hold dear. I think it. Yeah, I think it has. Um, it, I mean, it, it's it shined a light on keeping close to family and friends for sure. Um, I suddenly realised as as this all began that there were lots of people that I hadn't spoken to in far too long a time, um, who I didn't I didn't know how well they were and mm. whether they were coping okay with this. Um, and that was a kind of a sad shock actually um, that I hadn't been as kind of good a friend and family mm. member as as I should have been. Um, so it's caused me to reconnect in many ways with lots of people, which I actually really value and, and feel really lucky for. Mm. Um, I think kind of above and beyond that, um, the difficulty I have, obviously, is that kind of like understanding how people use the internet is also um, kind of my professional life. Um, so in yeah. a sense, I've kind of been able to kind of displace probably a lot of the personal into the professional um, because we are right now kind of doing, I, I think probably everyone around the country and the world is kind of, trying to understand how their little slice of expertise, however kind of humble and specialised it is, fits into the COVID-19 problem mm. and, and what good they can do. Me and my colleagues, we've all decided basically, well, the one thing that we do know about is kind of online research. Mm. So we're doing our best to try and find, you know, try basically to try and deal with the social and economic consequences of COVID-19 through internet research in as far as we can. Mm. Emotional contagion, ideational diffusion, rumour, all that kind of thing. And I think a situation like this, I mean, if you choose to see it through the lens of an experiment, it's such a rich moment in time to be able to see how people react under pressure, um, how we use the resources available to us. Um, I wonder... Because I know that where you are, so in the UK, you're not in lockdown yet. Uh, I don't know whether that would have changed by the time this comes out. Um, but is there something that you thought you couldn't live without, but in the situation, through the situation, you know, you discovered that you actually really don't need? I, I, Natalie, I think, I think that is, it's too early for me to tell so far. Um, there's, there's plenty of things which I knew that I liked, um, such as going to the pub. <laughs> which I found myself actually surprisingly yeah. not too miserable to be doing without. Um, yeah. Whether there's anything, you know, truly, truly fundamental and vital, such as physically seeing my friends and family mm. um, that I could do without for a length of time. Uh, uh, well, let's do, let's do, um, let's speak again in a, in a month's time, perhaps. Mm. Um, mm. And I can tell you how cheerful I've been in the, uh, uh, in the intervening time. <laughs> So in terms of what trends you think are going to come out of this in terms of technology, I'm particularly interested in the political side. What do you think 
we might start to see, or what are you seeing signs of already um, in the places that have been affected, but then also in the UK in terms of how people are understanding this from a political perspective? It's an extremely good question. I mean, very clearly, um, I mean, so, so the, the big political event on, on the horizon is obviously the US elections in November this year. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I would be totally, totally astonished if um, coronavirus isn't the absolutely dominant um, issue in that election now. Mm. The response to it, the bailout, um, whether, um, you know, um, whether the fiscal stimulus was enough, whether it was too much, whether it was helping businesses too much, whether it should be paid out to people. Um, it's already in the States been turned into a, into a partisan political football. It was the very, since the very moment that it became a, a matter of kind of like, you know, discussion over there. Mm. Um, we, we'll also see the kind of world of dark influence, <laughs> you know, the um, kind of weird grab bag of kind of militaries and adventurers and disaffected Democrats and shadowy Republican billionaire donors and, <laughs> um, and, and everyone else who, who's decided that the internet is a, is, is a forum which allows you to kind of game and hack people's opinions mm. uh, much more easily than it is for anyone to find out that you're gaming and hacking people's opinions. Yeah. We'll see coronavirus become their touchstone or, or North Star over this time as well. Everything, I think, is going to become about coronavirus. Mm. Um, for me, politically, probably in the long run, the most interesting thing is going to be the reaction or relationship of like states to the internet. Yeah. Um, much in the way, for instance, that like when the state moved in to deal with more and more of kind of say economic and social life at the, throughout the course of the Second World War, um, it then didn't really ever fully recede again. So, you know, the NHS was born, national, mm. much more national security much more understanding that the state was responsible for fiscal and macroeconomic policy, much more that they were kind of responsible for how many jobs existed and mm. so on. Well, um, if we do see a kind of tide of state kind of intervention in the internet, uh, I, I don't think that will ever fully recede either. Mm. So I'm curious then, kind of connecting to that point, um, and again, this is more a sense of where you imagine this could go. Um, what do you think the new normal could look like? Um, well, I think the new normal possibly could be that by necessity, um, the kind of rules and laws and norms and professional standards which have long existed in the kind of analogue world will kind of suddenly and quite sharply be applied onto the digital world as well. Mm. So over the last kind of 10 or 15 years, we've, we've basically seen with the rise of the digital world a kind of undermining of a lot of those systems of, of rules. Um, you know, everything from what a monopoly looks like through to um, what you can say about someone through to what harassment really is, um, through to what hate speech really is, um, or assault. Mm. Um, which, which has kind of created a world, you know, a digital world, which is actually in many cases like far less rules-based, far more chaotic and freewheeling than, than the analog world. Um, and now suddenly... We, we, we might be seeing a circumstance where this is just a kind of unacceptable state of affairs given that mm. the internet is the centre of our social political lives and it's going to be the main way in which it's going to inform our reaction to anything to do with the coronavirus. Um, in which case, the new normal will suddenly be digital versions of all of those. Well. Like um, much more intervention into the platform engineering, much more intervention into content removal, much more intervention into um, the way in which stuff is monetised. Mm. Um, possibly a redrawing of um, cybercrime enforcement. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, like, it could just tumble and keep going and cascade. That's so fascinating. I mean, I think nothing, no area will go untouched. Yeah, indeed, very possibly, very possibly. So in closing, bringing your expertise and your thoughts and your area of uh, knowledge to this question, for people who are listening, so most of us listening at this point are probably being affected socially, economically by the virus. Um, what question could you put to everyone listening that you think would be interesting for us to dwell with in this moment? What an, that's, that's an extremely good question. <laughs> um, uh, I think it is, um, what innovations can we all make? So we, we, we all have to find, you know, I mean, like, what, one of the dangers here is that um, if you're not a social epidemiologist... Mm you know, or a public health expert, 
or and if you are basically taking advice and staying in your own home I think it can at the moment feel like you are just basically a spectator on one of the most momentous events that any of us are going to live through yeah yeah so how do we change that how do we how do each of us apply what we know about um to um uh begin to work on the manifold kind of like touch points of the coronavirus on life and our culture and our civilization and society and more importantly what can we now do what can we now innovate and build new stuff can we can we make to basically um deal with this cloud of a a million tiny Mm. problems which are orbiting around the one big problem that's a lot of food for thought so if you're a platform developer how do you build a platform to deal with social isolation so digging into the big problems that this um, crisis is unearthing and finding ways to create solutions that are hopefully more integrated in the systems that we have and not not necessarily going for these things as separate problems. I don't know if I'm reading in a different direction. Um, no, I mean, I, th- no, I think I think I think you're right. But um, I, I just, you know, it, it, some of the most important. So, so we'll, let's go back to the Second World War, which is one of my kind of favourite uh, <laughs> reference points at the moment. Um, you know. I, I don't think it was necessarily particularly clear at the beginning of the Second World War that um, a team of um, kind of logisticians and um, mathematicians would probably have a greater impact than almost any military commander on the war. Mm. But obviously, those mathematicians in Bletchley Park eventually um, cracked uh, Enigma and almost as a byproduct invented the computer. <laughs> Like, I see no reason, I mean, I see no reason why something like that isn't going to happen again now. Well, I hope that this is going to crack open a lot of positive, unexpected changes that we so badly need. And maybe it is exactly this moment in time where we need a jumpstart in terms of understanding how interconnected we all are um, and how easy it is to make change when we're really up against the knife edge. Indeed. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at Natalie Nahai. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also, if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping on the link. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.